So as we begin uh, this study in Advent, uh, just by way of, of kind of preamble, just talking about where we are in uh, this time of year, if you haven't heard already, when we talk about Advent, we're talking about the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. And you might wonder, you know, why do we do this? Why do we continue to observe this historic event? And the reason is because Advent is much bigger than the historic event of Jesus's birth. It is about God's tendency to arrive, God's tendency to enter into our world, which has happened not just in the incarnation, not just in Jesus being born, but in all the different ways that he continues to come into the world and in the way that we are waiting for Jesus to return, to come into the world fully and to bring his kingdom in fullness on earth. And so when we celebrate Advent, it's not just about this thing that we do, it's actually a way of disciplining our tastes, disciplining our appetites. Thank you. It's like, you know, when you're waiting for a rib-in bone-eye, or bone-in ribeye, which is a different thing entirely, to come to the table, right? And you're sitting in a restaurant, you're waiting for this ribeye to come to the table and it, it cures you. You know what's coming. And so it cures you for all of the fool's gold when they come by like salads and bread, you know? No way. I know what's coming, all right? And so I wait for this with expectation. Advent is about reminding us of that, telling the story of that. And so tonight in my house, we'll continue the tradition that we started last night, which is to go through the Advent book. And if you have an Advent book for your kids, if you, if you don't, you should get one or just for your family, you know, just you by yourself even. You should go through the Advent book. It's fun. And in it, as you go through, there are these little doors and each page is a door and you open the door and it, it tells you some part of the story of Jesus' coming to earth. And the, you know, the angels meeting the shepherds and our, our kids always say, can we skip over the picture of Herod? Because he's that, you know, that bloodthirsty, mean Herod moment, you know? And so as we go through this Advent book, there's that sense memory of opening the page and, and seeing Jesus and seeing the story of Jesus. And we need to be retold. We need to be kind of reintegrated into that place of expectation on a yearly basis. So that's why we mark that season. It shapes us to know God more clearly. And so we'll examine, as we kind of go through this this four-week sermon series, we're going to reserve the birth narrative of Jesus for Christmas Eve, okay? We're not going to talk about Jesus being born until Christmas Eve. What we will do is we'll look at four different ways in which Jesus arrives in the Gospels. We'll talk this morning about the way that Jesus arrives at the wedding at Cana. And then we'll talk about the way that Jesus arrives to a crippled man at the pool of Siloam. And we'll talk about the way that Jesus arrives at a religious festival and announces his kingdom to a bunch of people who are just thirsty with expectation. And then we'll talk about the way that Jesus arrives in the upper room with his disciples before his death. We'll examine what it means for us to receive the Jesus who's always showing up at the door is always kind of a part of our worlds and our lives. I want to read John chapter 2 and remind you also to text in your questions if you have any as we go through this. Love to answer those. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, who was invited to the wedding with his disciples, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you add understanding to your word as we study it this morning that we would be a people of rejoicing, not just because it's Advent season, but because Advent has changed us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So in that masterpiece of cinematic art, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, there's one scene that I believe captures the essence of the human condition. After the work of hanging 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights and overcoming an unknown error that kept the lights from lighting, and after wrecking the decorative reindeer and Santa in response to the error, the lights finally come on to Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, right? It's a triumph. I'll bet that's what Handel probably imagined that chorus would be set to a movie like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's a triumph. Overcoming the odds. He's almost crying. He's so happy. He hugs his family. And he hugs his in-laws. As he puts his arm around his father-in-law, awash in the glow of his triumph. His father-in-law says, what does he say? The little lights are not twinkling. And Clark says, I know art. And thank you for noticing. The little lights are not twinkling. We know this instinctively. The little lights are not twinkling. Our lives, even when carefully arranged for maximum triumph, often the little lights are not quite twinkling. I love the line because it pays respect to the fact that life is full of absences. Things that should work some way and they just end up not working that way. Life is full of absences where we wish something was or something worked or something will be, and and it just isn't. So what does it mean? Jesus, you know, in in, in this particular picture of Jesus's ministry, he turns water into wine, and that might seem like irrelevant information as you walk around in the absences of your life, as you walk through whatever you're walking through. Jesus can make wine, you might say, but I can buy it, you know? So you pour a glass of wine tonight as you lay out the week's work orders on the kitchen table or papers to grade or patient files. It hasn't been the easiest week. You've worked through a difficult relationship with a friend who never seems to call unless she needs something. And you're in your own season this year, a time where all the branding tells you you should be smiling next to a husband or a husband-to-be, or you should be getting wived up real soon if, you know, so that you can enter the Christmas season like a real person, or you ought to have children and you don't. The days are getting grayer and shorter. You're in central Ohio. This is the way things are. Thankfully, the wine glass is always the same size. You have something. Tidings of joy. Might not be world peace or inner peace, but at least, you know, it's peace and quiet. That'll do. 
Life is full of absences. This is the context for Advent. This is the context every time that Jesus enters into the picture in the Gospels. Life is full of absences. The little lights aren't twinkling. So you toast yourself there in, the, you know, in your own apartment. To me, you say out loud, to no one in particular. You wonder, what is it exactly? What did Jesus do? Why did Jesus make wine? Why did he make it? Now, the fact that the incident takes place at uh, this wedding feast in Cana, it's, it's actually the ideal place for us to open the first door you know, of Advent, so to speak. It's Jesus's first miracle. It's actually happened on the tail end of him being baptized and kind of beginning to announce, hey, the, the kingdom's coming. I'm here and I'm going to perform the works of the kingdom. Something is going to happen. That, that much is clear if you've been walking around with Jesus this week. And it's the ideal, for, for, uh, ideal place for Jesus to advent, to, to show up, because even at a wedding feast, the joy can run low. You know, the glitter, the magic can fade. The wine runs out. So this isn't a small thing culturally, what's happened here, that the, the wine has run out. It's kind of a humiliating turn for the, the host. So Jesus' mother, Mary, who seems to have some sort of authority or relationship to the party, comes to Jesus and asks him to do something to remedy the situation. So the interaction between Jesus and his mother uh, it might seem kind of off-putting or weird at the time, but uh, his direct address calling her woman is, is not actually insulting or inappropriate. It's a form of formal address. And depending on kind of the translation, we read, you know, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time yet. What he's essentially saying is, I'm now stepping out of the role of son and of friend to the wedding party. I'm stepping out of this role of helper. I'm, I'm not going to do what you want as a friend or as a son. Instead, I'm going to step into the role of Messiah, which he clearly does as he performs this miracle. The friend Jesus has exited and the Jesus of scripture, the Jesus, the Messiah has advented. He has come. He's at the door. But what does he bring with him? Okay. In this particular absence, that's kind of the question. And this first uh, miracle, the wedding at Cana, you know, it, it kind of appears like an appendix sometimes to Christians. We have like a foggy recollection. Jesus made some wine. There's a lot of wine. I remember that. Uh, people were amazed at the wine being made. And uh, I have no idea why he did it, okay? Which is generally how, like we think that what Jesus really did is it, it, it's kind of like uh, Jesus doing this sort of, you know, David Copperfield moment, you know? He's, it's like a, a ta-da moment in the middle of the story of Jesus. It's a miracle for like the B side of the album that Jesus drops in Palestine in 30 AD. It's not like the A side miracles. This is like the one, oh yeah, and also once Jesus uh, turned water into wine, you know, it's, it's, he calls it like wedding jams, you know, but instead it's not. This is something much bigger than that. Like everything else in the gospels, nothing is wasted here. This is really important. We need Jesus to turn water into wine especially if we have experienced the same kind of emptiness where we might not be in crisis, but think about it. Are you out of resources emotionally, spiritually, physically? Are you feeling that? This is the kind of place into which Jesus advents. It's not just addressing the shortage of wine at one feast in one ancient Near Eastern town 2,000 years ago. But the whole landscape of life in the world, the wine is not for one party, it's for 
all time. So how does Jesus address the absence in the room? One, he makes wine. Simple enough, right? But what is wine? Why does Jesus make wine? Why didn't Jesus just make really good wine juice so that the people didn't have to you know, drink alcohol? He could have just made really super good grape juice. And people would have been like, I normally like wine, but this grape juice is fantastic. Okay, he could have done that. He could have done that. He chose wine. Why did he choose wine? I want you to see Psalm 104 with me for a second. This is the way that the scriptures begin to talk about wine. And it's important. It's not just because we get to say, ha ha ha, Jesus says it's okay to have wine. This is also because this is a very specific redemptive historical setting in the scriptures that we need to know. All right. So Psalm 104, 13, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is a picture of the creation working right. The world that God has created works right when wine flows. You can put it on a shirt and sell it. The creation that God has made works right when wine flows. Everything has to work together, think about it, to make wine, right? The soil, the climate, the weather, the animals even have to contribute to the health of the vine by tending the soil, by dealing with pests that harm the fruit. And of course, it also requires the work of a laborer, everything working together. Wine is the picture of creation twinkling, okay? So Jesus, when he shows up here, he says, the thing I'm going to do to announce my kingdom, this is his first miracle. Everybody marks it. John marks it. This is the first one. It has significance. The first one he chooses is a miracle that shows the fullness of the creation restored. Wine flows. Jesus is saying, I am here for a bigger reason and making sure you don't go to hell. I'm here to bring fruit where there was fruitlessness. I'm here to bring fullness where there is absence. So he makes wine, not a small thing. He uses these water pots, right? And he didn't just use the water pots because he was like, well, what's big enough to hold the wine? Here's some water pots. Because he makes a huge amount of wine, right? Which we'll talk about in a second. Jesus asked the help to bring the water pots. Now, these were large ceramic pots. They held the water for ceremonial cleansing. Now, ceremonial cleansing began as kind of a Levitical practice where before you ate, you would cleanse yourself to show the need to give thanks even as you ate. The need for repentance, the need for humility, okay? That everything that you're about to enjoy comes from God. And that even before you put anything in your mouth, you have to recognize that God is king. But it had turned into this big event. Ceremonial cleansing became the way that you said, I am the clean one, right? It's like going to a party at somebody's house, a normal everyday party, and someone brings in a nice sculpture, you know? And they're like, hey, by the way, I also did this. Welcome to my house, okay? And so everybody else doing the ceremonial cleansing, they have brought the big pots out. They're like, we are really going to get super holy in here, Okay. So Jesus says, I'll tell you what, let's take those. Let's take those that have been turned into a way for you to be spiritually proud, and let me turn it into something else. 
So he brings them forward, probably around 150 gallons worth of liquid. Jesus chooses these as the best picture of the kingdom. I want you to see in Jeremiah 31, 12, how he begins to transform what these are. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What Jesus is doing is he's taking this thing which was supposed to show us real flourishing and real transformation. And God is saying, look, I wanna plug this in to that place where I said, I'm gonna be faithful to you. I'm gonna keep my promise. This is covenantal love that God is pointing to. He's saying wine is a part of the story of my covenant of love for you. The promise of God's covenant toward us here in Jeremiah 31 includes this beautiful picture of wine. When I bless you, wine will be involved. So Jesus takes this thing that people took and said, well, this is what's going to bless me. I'm going to make myself clean. And Jesus says, I'm going to transform that into the symbol of my promised love for you. Instead of the focus on what you can do, the focus is going to be on my love for you. What buckets of religious cleansing couldn't accomplish, the Lord's wine can. How about Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 13? Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will bless you with the covenant and the steadfast love that you swore to your fathers, right? So covenant, God's promise for us, his love for us. Verse 13, he will love you, bless you, and multiply you. This sounds really good. I've heard this before. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. Jesus is saying what you need to know is the covenant is still working. Wine is a sign of covenantal promise keeping from God. That in their mourning and deadness of heart, their exhaustion, he has not forgotten his promise. Jesus kind of connecting wine to his office as Messiah. It's like a, it's like a husband and wife sitting down and the husband's reminiscing about their engagement. You know, remember when this happened, remember when, when we did this. I love you as much as I ever did. Jesus is pushing back against this sign that they had created to make themselves okay. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Remember my covenant. What a God, right? You can use the sign of your inability. Think about what it had to have been like constantly doing this ritual, making sure no one else sees what's really going on beneath the surface, knowing that no matter how much you purify yourself, no matter how much you religiously cleanse yourself, your heart is still in there. And it still does and thinks things that it shouldn't. And you're still full of pride and you still struggle. Jesus takes the sign of inability and he fills it with the sign of his ability. He uses water pots. But he also makes too much wine. So you might stop and say, look, aren't we reading a little bit into this? He's just making wine, right? Until you consider this. Jesus makes 
at least the equivalent of like 30 times the amount of wine. Let's just be honest, whether they're central Ohioans, 25 times the amount of wine that you could possibly need for a party like this, okay? Jesus uses so much wine that you have to start to ask the question, what is Jesus doing, okay? It's like if somebody says, you know, I'm out of wine, and then someone shows up to your house, and they don't just come with like one bottle of wine, they come with a truck that then backs up big crates of wine and says, hey, how about that? Take your wine, right? Jesus, as he performs this miracle, is saying, no, 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 get the picture. This is abundant. This is wine that's going to last beyond this party. Do you understand? This is wine for a party bigger than this party. It's huge. Jesus advents. When he advents, man, when he shows up, it's joy. Wine cannot be removed from a sign of joy and gladness. We've already read it from the scriptures. Do we understand that kind of religious experience? I want you to think about that for a second. Do we understand the kind of religious experience where your God says, I give you truckloads of gladness because I love you? Do we understand that kind of religious experience? Or are we locked in to the water pots and the external cleansing? And they're running the rat race to try to be more holy than the next person without having a heart that's changed. He makes too much wine. Look, let me give you just really quickly an application here. You need communities, I'm not going to say where you drink wine, okay? You need communities where you can joyfully work through the gospel together, joyfully work through the gospel together. Joy is what Jesus brings as he advents. You need joyful communities. Find a place to rejoice with other Christians. That's a priority. But here's the other part of that. Make sure that your small group of Christians actually rejoices together. Jesus cries at the Bible study that never laughs. I'm sorry. Jesus cries at the, at the Bible study that never rejoices. If there's no rejoicing, then somebody hasn't had enough wine figuratively speaking, okay? If there's no rejoicing, something's missing. But I can't tell you, like, the lack of joy in a small group of Christians might be indicative of a really deep theological error, just an inability to see Jesus for who he says he is here as the wine bringer. John Calvin, he has a wonderful insight into the proper response to getting about 200 gallons of wine at a party, okay? Which is what we all receive as we Come to life in Christ. John Calvin on this wedding at Cana, he says this. When God daily gives us a large supply, when God daily gives us a large supply of wine, right? He's making application. It's our own fault if in his kindness, if his kindness is an excitement to luxury. In other words, in case we go off the deep end saying, ah, I don't need anything anymore because, you know, God's given me his grace and I don't need to do whatever. I don't need to follow his law, whatever else, because I'm just happy. He says, look, that's your own fault if you take God's luxury as an excuse to do that. But on the other hand, it is an undoubted trial of our sobriety if we are sparing and moderate in the midst of abundance. In other words, he's saying, if the Lord is pouring, you must be drunk if you're not drinking, right? You're, he's not sure, Calvin, the reformer, that you are actually sober if you are sparing and moderate in the face of God's abundant grace. In other words, rejoice. In other words, overflow with generosity. 
with joy. I love that idea. It's unbelievable abundance. You question our sobriety if we sit there and we aren't moved by it. This wasn't a practical miracle, okay? He could have made 10 gallons of wine, he makes 200. He could have made moderately okay tasting wine instead of the best. Jesus ensures there's gonna be way more wine than anyone can drink and he points the way to something like this in Amos 9. I'm taking you through the wine passages now, okay? It's like the wine country in the scriptures. Amos chapter nine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Man, how awesome is that? When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, when there's just so much abundance growing that it can't even, you can't even stop it. It's, it's overcoming your ability to harvest. When the treader of grapes overcomes him who sows the seed, there's no room anymore to plant because there's too much abundance. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. You can't even collect it. There's so much flowing, the abundance of God for us. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Man, this is Jesus, how he speaks in to the absences in our life. He's in a wedding where the wine runs out and he makes the hills flow. This is how he speaks into the absences of our lives. Jesus' abundant grace is huge. The setting for Advent is that you deal with the absences of life and God reaches us and comes to us in abundance. This is not neat. You know? If you've ever had a kid that gets their favorite food and they're like two years old, there's like 25% of that food that will make it in their mouths. The other, 20, the other 75% is like over here and over here. It's on their face. It's on, it's on their clothes. Okay, I know some of you who are like really serious about cleanliness and keeping it. That may bother you, but listen, the abundant grace of God is so big. This is not a picture of polite, clean, tidy blessing from God. It overflows. My cup overflows. The Lord is my shepherd, right? It's going to challenge you. And the reason why I'm saying this is because in our culture, we try not to get too worked up about things. Our color palette is earth tones. Would you like beige or another color of beige? Or how about a gray, right? We try not to get too excited about things. When we hear something good in a sermon or in a worship service, we, mm mm-hmm, right? Mm. We only have vaguely audible mmms. When the unbelievable beauty of God's grace strikes us, we say, mmm. I'm betting that when the new wine came into the wine place, whatever, you know, inside the wedding, suddenly they're looking, here's the wine in these pots. I bet it brought the house down. I bet it brought the house down. This is the proper response to the blessing of God. And so to say that we must be joyful is actually application. Joy has to be a part of the Christian life. I'm not asking you to be emotional, all right? I'm not saying, guys, you should be more emotional. I'm not saying guys are, I'm just people. You should be more emotional. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you ought to be more orthodox, biblical, and theological. If you believe what the scriptures say are really true, then it ought to drive us to powerful emotional responses, but also bodily responses. The biggest, most, the most common command in the scriptures is not obey, but rejoice, which is in itself a command, right? Rejoice. 
Why? Because to rejoice messes us up. It deconstructs us. It takes away our composure. It takes away our ability to just be placid. To rejoice brings a tiny little bit of redemptive chaos into our worlds. We do weird stuff. We jump up. We, we hit each other's hands for some reason, right? We, we scream. We yell. We, we mimic things that happen in our favorite sports teams on you know, television. We do weird stuff. When we are rejoicing, our lives look different for like a second. It's transformation. It's biblical. Joy has to follow a real belief in the gospel. I can't get behind, look, I, I can't get behind the kind of joy that we tend to talk about, which is to say, well, look, what joy really is, is it's, uh, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a very serious, mature happiness, you know? I'm not happy, I'm joyful, which is like the way to say that you're a serious Christian, you know? I don't get too worked up about these things. When bad things happen, I just, I kind of smile a little bit and pray right? No, what this is saying, that there is a kind of disorder that occurs in the Christian's life when they're impacted by the abundant grace of God. Rejoicing happens. Read the Psalms. Read the language used to describe what people do. Ancient Near Eastern people aren't just weird, okay? They dance. They sing. They stand up. My friend who's a pastor in a black church, I look, he, sometimes he shares videos and he's like, check this out. And it's like, he'll, he'll be preaching... And it's like people in the back are just standing up for some reason. Like they're just standing up. Like, I just can't believe that. That's amazing. That's great news, right? I'm not saying that necessarily we all need to do this. We need to do that in a way that's culturally appropriate for who God's made us. Okay, that's fine. But, but sometimes it's going to challenge your, mm -hmm. and sometimes you're going to see that the wine is enough for every single day you're ever going to need it. And it's going to be enough for every single absence that there's no way to exhaust the good wine of God's grace for you and his care and his love, his covenantal love for you, that it's going to force you to an mm-hmm that's almost audible. And that's okay. That's okay. Rejoicing is a part of feasting with the Lord and taking on his wine. You know, I've talked about this a lot, but I still love when Papa Wemba, the originator of the rumba, when he died and his followers were interviewed, by the BBC, and they kept interviewing him. But these people are just broken down to tears. They're just, they're weeping. And as the BBC interviewed them without, uh, without exception, every single person that they interviewed, all these Congolese men, women, children, they did the rumba when they interviewed, right? And the thing that I love about that is because it was like, you knew that they understood who this was because it forced them into a physical expression of that familiarity. They, they couldn't help it. You can say, well, yeah, this is what he meant to me, or you can dance. And if you're going to be related to the master, the true master of the feast, who brings the wine that gladdens men's hearts, the best way to show that we know him is to rejoice. We can't be uncomfortable with that. It should provoke in us a response. Look, the last thing is this. You know, he, he, he makes wine. He puts it in these stone jars to tell us something. He makes way too much wine. And also his wine is just way too good, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not a wine snob. I'm not, 
I choose wine by the label, okay? If wine is interesting, I buy it. Uh, I generally try to stay around $10. Sometimes I go to $14. It's really nice wine. But in general, I don't know what good wine is, okay? I don't know. But I do like, sometimes I choose wine from different countries because I'm like, that's nice to think about the wine came from there. Outside of that, I don't know anything, okay? The wine here that Jesus makes is too good. You would have expected, they said, for the good wine to flow until no one could notice the difference between good and bad wine. And then you bring the bad wine. You kind of put it in there and you just laugh at all the people who think it's still the good wine, right? But that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus brought good wine before people had had enough. So they were still cognizant. They understood what was going on. And the feastmaster is amazed. Feastmaster, by the way, is my nickname from now. I love it, feastmaster. Into that absence and into yours and mine, it's important to know that Jesus brings the very best. They bring the very best. Now, we might not know what that is. Okay, the connection might not be as obvious as you have here. There's no wine and then Jesus brings the best wine. I can't guarantee that in your absence of a good friend, you're going to find a better one or the absence of your life-affirming work that you're going to find better work. I can't promise you that. I can't tell you that on this side of eternity that any of that is going to happen the way that we necessarily want it to. I can't. What I can say is that in those absences, you will never ever be without Jesus. And if you are never ever without Jesus in those absences, then those absences cannot swallow you up. I cannot terrify you anymore. I cannot tell you that you're worthless anymore. They cannot tell you that you have no hope anymore. Jesus puts himself front and center in the middle of absence in that party, and he does too in our lives. I know the absence is deep and scary and sometimes terrifying. I am here. I am here. Well, You think back to us again. Jesus brings a new wine. It may not surprise you that I grew up around bars as a kid, given the content of the sermon. Uh, look, um, my mom was a singer in a band, and as a kid, I, I just I grew up around pubs, and I knew the life cycle of the pub and how it worked. You know, at the beginning of the night, people come in, and you get to know people. Or the good drinker is kind and glad. You know, you talk a good bit; they get familiar with you. But there's nothing like last call to change the mood. As soon as last call happens, there's no, there's no drink anymore. It doesn't matter how close of a friend you've made at the pub. It's time to go. It's, there's, not, there's no other reason to be here, right? We're, we're out of here. Everyone begins to think about the next thing, the next day's stuff, the next bar. At closing time, you have to pay up. That's the next thing that happens. You've been drinking, but now you've got to pay the fee. Nobody can change that. Jesus allows the wine to run out before announcing himself at the wedding because only Jesus can speak to that moment where wine runs out. He wants us to see that picture. He wants us to understand what it means. You, when you run out of wine, when you run out of the, the oil, when you run out of gladness, I'm here. I speak to it. Only Jesus can speak into that absence, boredom, worry, whatever it is. And the wedding at Cana is not the last time, actually, that Jesus advents. And the last time he advents in joy, it's not. It's not actually even the last time that he provides abundant wine. The cross is Cana too. The cross is Cana too. The bridegroom wins his bride at the cross. And when last call sets in, we all realize we're the ones who need saving. We're the ones who need a physician, that we're empty. Jesus's blood flows abundantly for us. He pours himself out on the cross. That is, I know at a moment we say, I, I want to revolt at that idea of, of Jesus's blood flowing like the abundant wine at the wedding of Cana. But that's how he establishes 
himself. My blood flows for thee, for you, for me. Cana happens every week in worship. Every single week. We come to the Lord's table with hearts tired and empty. Jesus provides himself like abundant wine. He gives us food and drink to nourish our souls. Every single week we see that miracle reenacted. Better than self-sufficiency or self-righteousness. Look, if we believe the Bible, every single week when you come to worship, okay, you receive from God something better than whatever presence you're hoping for. Whatever thing you feel, that absence, you receive something better every single week as you receive nourishment from Christ. If the Bible is to be believed, that's what we hear. So when you come in the door, that's one reason why we tell you, don't leave your problems, issues at the door. Bring them with you. Recognize the absence as it exists and then come and fill your stomach. Come and take the wine and the bread and be restored. Fleming Rutledge says this. To know God in his son, Jesus Christ, is to know that he is unconditionally love. That's what he is. Unto the last drop of God's own blood. In the cross and the resurrection of his son, God has given us everything that we need to live with alongside the terrors of his seeming absence. In the middle of that absence, he has given us all that we need. All that we need. Are you the feast master today? The feast master of the wedding of Cana? You're anticipating inferior wine? Jesus' grace and care, it's, it's not very big. Is that what you're anticipating? Or are you looking and saying, God has filled with covenantal love my cup? The hills drip. The vineyards and everything are gorgeous. I want to tell you that I think that when the Christian church remembered this and retold this story again and again and again, I think one effect that it had is that it made them look at emptiness differently. How many times do you think people at the wedding at Cana saw an empty wine glass and thought, man, you remember? Do you remember that? And I think it also happened when they dealt with people who were broken and empty. I thought God can change that. Emptiness doesn't look the same after you've had the wine of abundant gladness. And the Christian church is the place where we cheer on the kind of work of bringing abundant gladness and restoration, and good wine into the world around us. That's our job. But if we're ever going to do that, we have to drink deeply from Jesus Christ.